Go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Psalm 98 this evening. Psalm 98. Our message tonight is called Yahweh's Saving Righteousness from Psalm 98. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Picking it up in verse 1. Psalm 98, these are the words of God. Sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a loud shout before King Yahweh. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. Uh, sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to accept your word, silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. One of the things that I've tried to emphasize during this series is the multitudinous perspectives of the Psalter in terms of the human experience in God's world. Being human in God's creation is a central and fundamental calling as the Lord has bestowed upon his people this great task of pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life, a phrase we like to turn a lot around here. The book of Psalms runs the gamut of living as image bearers in what we can call a meticulously created integral reality. Uh, there is grief to process, love to share, tears to shed, projects to build, encouragement to bestow, um, antipathy to sift through, sin to repent of, uh, joy to fight for humor to be amused by, friends to make, reconciliation to work through, sadness to cure, conviction to carry forth, creation to develop, enemies to conquer, children to mature, possessions to steward, culture to build, an anointed one to submit to, and last but not least, songs to sing. I think I covered almost everything. Simply put, the Psalms are replete with cultural evocation, they make us remember the mighty works of God and our place in redemptive history. When we read the Psalms, we're supposed to have uh, to be evoked towards uh, our mind and our hearts being shaped and challenged as we consider what God himself has done and the great glory that is everything we see in redemptive history. The Psalms challenge, challenge us to join in with all of creation in the praise and worship of the triune God. And our text tonight uh, encapsulates this rather brilliantly. Psalm 98 may not be very familiar to you. However, you should know something about it. It's a hymn of praise 
and it was the text used by Isaac Watts for his well-known Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. So there's a fun fact for you, historically speaking. And in many ways, Psalm 98 is the tipping point of a long series of hymns which describe the royal reign of King Yahweh. Uh, Psalm 90, I'm curious, anybody extra, extra bonus points if you read Psalm 90 through 100 this week? Okay, a couple, I know some of you are just too humble to raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 90 actually kicks off what is known as book four of the total five books or sections of the Psalms. And it starts with this royal reign of Yahweh. In fact, one, uh, it would be wise if you didn't get a chance to read, to go, go read in one sitting Psalm 90 through 100, and you can see and feel the repetition over and over again about the creation crying out to God and God's righteousness being manifest in the nations. And that theme just keeps coming and going for those 10 chapters. And you can see that progression, and it wouldn't take you but a few minutes to do so. Now, Psalm 98, interestingly enough, has its counterpart in Psalm 96. So maybe if you remember reading this week, Psalm 96 sounded a lot like Psalm 98, which it does. Both of those psalms call on us to sing a new song. That phrase, sing a new song, shows up again in 96. But in, in 98, however, it explains in a bit more detail why this is to be done. Why should we sing a new song? And what is he getting at? We'll see in a minute. Both Psalms, 96 and 98, desire God's name to be praised because Yahweh's kingdom is good for the world and not just for Israel, by the way. Both emphasize the kingship of Yahweh as the ruler of the nations, and thus he is also, as the ruler of the nations, the judge of the earth. And finally, both texts, they call on the created order to praise and worship Yahweh for his cosmic loving kindness. So when you start calling on the mountains to sing and the trees to clap, you, you are obviously giving them human quali qualities, uh, anthropomorphizing them, and we're doing that because they do praise God. The, the trees that grow and, and exhibit beautiful colors, especially in the fall here in October and into November, uh, they magnify God, and, and it's a beautiful sight, and He loves it. He's an artist, and He loves it in that sense. So we're calling on creation to do what creation's already doing. The Psalms also, also they, they, uh, oftentimes will invoke the past in order to shape the future. They'll invoke the past, what God has done, in order to shape us for the future. From the creation account of Genesis to the call of Abraham, from the Exodus and the period of the Judges to the time of, of David and Solomon, the writers, and we, all, we know that David wrote a lot of the Psalms, but the writers of this poetry and this music want us to see history as being the unfolding of God's glorious power and wisdom. And that's what history is. And we can look to the future, and we can make plans and reverse engineer our lives and that sort of thing, but we need to know that history is that unfolding of God's power and wisdom. One of the great errors of modern philosophers is historicism. That's maximizing and absolutizing the historical aspect of our existence. So everything is just a historical shaping. But again, you can't absolutize that because then where, where is history going? Is this just we're on this karmic ride? <laughs> you know, we're all going to die and come back as something else or someone else. Um, there, there are consequences to that fallacious thinking. Now, for Israel, 
Think about their history. The crisis of Babylonian exile ended in Psalm 89. Yahweh came. Yahweh came to reconcile and redeem them. And Yahweh's response of loyalty to them is emphasized in the next section of the Psalms, starting in chapter 90, going into chapter 100. Now, and the reason, the reason we emphasize that is because in troubled times, any of you having troubled times, you're having troubled times, people do, in those times we must recall the covenant faithfulness, that saving righteousness of God, so that we too might see all of creation sing for joy. I want Fauquier County to sing for joy at the glory of God. I would love to see the state of Virginia do that. And we all want that. We should want that. We want the United States of America to repent and covenant with God and sing praises to Him. And we, we want there to be so much joy that it's as though the trees are clapping, <laughs> the mountains are roaring and singing. That's what these psalms tell us to do. Now let's look at our text. Overview, quickly. Psalm 98, it's a hymn of praise. It's a hymn of praise, but it can also be described as an enthronement song. It's about God being king. God being, it's a coronation psalm in some regard. In the face of adversity, Israel is called forth based on the covenant faithfulness of God, of Yahweh, their creator husband, in order to exalt in Yahweh's worldwide rulership. So what God has done for Israel, God is doing for the world, that sort of thing. So there are three sections, each have three verses. Let's look at those first. In verses 1 through 3, we'll read it in a second. Uh, this is the first section. It's a royal announcement of praise for the congregation. Why? So when, when, when Israel would come together for holy convocations and they would do like kind of what we're doing here, and they would sing psalms, they would, they would talk through this. Uh, it's, a, it's a song of praise for the congregation. But why praise? Why sing a new song? Well, because Yahweh is victorious. Look at verse 1. Sing to Yahweh a new song, congregation. For he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So the congregation is invited to sing a new song. New acts of God require new songs to sing. Um, those who write the songs write the culture. Those who write the songs write the culture. And Israel is no different. Why does the congregation need to sing a new song? Well, because God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, has done wondrous deeds, the text says. God's sovereign exploits end up being victories to celebrate. When God acts for his covenant people, God saves his covenant people. His right hand and his holy arm, they are metaphors for God's omnipotence. A reminder of Exodus 15:6 and how God's right hand shatters the enemy. I love that language. Not very nice, but it's great. His arm is what preserves his church unto glory. You are sustained every night and every morning by his powerful right arm. He sustains his church, too, during difficult times. But why should we praise? If I were to say to you, praise God, or parents, you tell your children, praise God. Well, why? Why should I praise God? Well, because Yahweh has won the victory. He has made known his salvation, and he has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. 
Well, children, your next question should be, well, how and when did he do this? Well, in this context, quite possibly when Cyrus decreed the return of Israel from exile, uh, the language that's used here, Steve read part of it, but it's from Isaiah 40 through 55, um, the, the, the paradigm of sin in exile, which traces its roots all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the garden. You remember? When Israel sinned, they were exiled from the land. When the people of God sin, God vomits them up. They start losing culture wars. And there is a culture war happening right now, like it or not. War is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. But the paradigm of sin and, and exile is met now with God's mighty acts of salvation. In verse 3, God remembers something. He remembers His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. The chesed of Yahweh and the faithfulness of Yahweh. That's actually almost a direct quotation from Exodus 34, verse 6. And that language was used as a shorthand way of speaking of the Mosaic Covenant. So when Moses received the law and led Israel... God is a God of loving kindness. He is a God of faithfulness. He is uh, patient with us. Those are descriptions straight out of the book of Exodus. When God saves his people, he reveals his righteousness. And his righteousness is his covenant faithfulness. And he does it to the world. In Paul's letter to the Romans, if you look on the front of your bulletin there, I actually put that there on purpose and I even emboldened it as a point of illustration. When Paul talks about Romans, see how it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In Paul's language, that phrase, righteousness of God, in Greek, it is God's righteousness, his faithfulness. God shows himself faithful and righteous in the gospel. We'll come back to that. But that's Paul's way of, of describing it. The mention of righteousness of loving kindness and faithfulness in connection to the whole earth, seeing the salvation of our God, that takes and points us to God taking upon himself to be Israel's God. Think about this. None of you chose Christ. Christ chose you. That's how it works. None of us are so perfect and great that we just said, well, I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take him. I'll take that God. No, it's not how it works. The Holy Spirit draws you to Christ he gives you your, your, the repentance necessary and the faith necessary to bring you into the grace of the covenant. But that's not on you. In Israel, it was the same way. God always told them repeatedly, don't act like you are all that and that you are what you are because you did this. You didn't do it. I did it. Yahweh did it. So that salvation of our God, it points to God himself taking it upon himself to be Israel's God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're my son. I called you. And thus, in that act, Israel is rescued from her enemies. Now, according to Psalm 97, verse 2, the foundation of God's throne consists of two things, righteousness and justice. That is the foundation of his throne. You can remember that, right, kids? What's the foundation of God's throne? Two things. Righteousness and justice. Burn that in your brain. Know that. Because, I mean, it's the foundation of his throne. It's who God is. There is no other foundation but that. His perfect righteousness, his perfect justice. Now, when God acts in history to deliver his people, when he does that, he fulfills his covenant promises. That's what's so great about the gospel. 
Jesus arrives and God, he fulfills the promises of God. They're fulfilled in him. And because God is both righteous and just, remember righteousness and justice, he is righteous and just, because of that, we are forensically made right with God in his courtroom. All of you are made right before God because of the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you. And that is his covenant faithfulness. So when he calls you out of darkness into his light, gives you his Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit gives you repentance and faith, you're brought into the covenant, you're baptized into the covenant, you are not guilty in the courtroom of God, and God is faithful in the covenant to you. And that's what's so great about baptism. He is faithful. And thus, by grace alone, through faith alone, we exhibit a life of, of gratitude. Uh, we exhibit a, a life of faith. We trust and we obey. That's the nature of his covenant. Now, and the reason is because God doesn't give people dead faith. God doesn't give people dead faith. He gives people fruitful faith. Not dead faith. Fruitful faith. So God's righteousness then should be seen as an uncovenanted act of salvation. And covenanted act of salvation. Uh, his righteousness pertains to his faithfulness in the covenant to you, to the people of God. So he rules and judges over creation. He sets the standard for righteousness, that which is right and pure and holy and good. He acts in history based on his covenant that he has made. By the way, the death and resurrection of Christ, a massively important covenantal act. That's why we have the Lord's Supper before us every week as we gather. That is a covenantal act. And creation and covenant go together, as we'll see shortly. So God is faithful to creation. He is faithful to Israel. And thus, he is considered the Lord in all, the Lord of all in this way. So in short, new song for a new victory, hail the King. Victory is salvation. The, the, it's interesting, the three times the Hebrew word for salvation is used in these first three verses. And if that happens, you know, pay attention. The salvation of God is used three times. Yahweh is the divine warrior king who fights Israel's battles. Jesus Christ is our divine warrior king who fights our battles. If only we would call on him and, and live in light of that. Now, there are no enemies here in this text. We dealt with that last week. There's no enemies here in the text. There is only victory. There's only dominion. There is only inexhaustible sovereignty on display. Now, in verses 4 through 6, it's the second section. It's a prescription for praise. Well, how should we praise? Well, we should praise with victory songs. And the word shout, by the way, begins and ends this section in verse 4 and then in verse 6. Look at, look at the text. Uh, make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a loud shout before King Yahweh. Exuberance in praise is the prescription for ailing cultures. If you're just in here and you're singing like, uh, da 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 da. I don't care if your voice is terrible. It might be very bad. Okay? That's okay. <laughs> God's glorified in your heart expressing itself in that way. Sing for crying out loud. Sing. 
exuberance in praise. Our praise should never, ever, whether it's here or you're singing in the car, I don't care. It should be full of exuberance. That is the prescription for ailing cultures. In this text, God, the divine warrior, has acted on behalf of his covenant people, and as a result, salvation, that is, victorious deliverance, has occurred. And the purpose of said salvation in history is to reveal the salvation and righteousness of God. God intends to use creation as a red carpet to show off his covenant faithfulness. Not in an arrogant way, but in a blessing way, a a true and pure holy way. Perhaps more nuanced, we could say that it's to reveal the victory and the vindication of God in front of a watching world. The world is watching, so he wants to reveal his salvation. So the whole earth is invited to make a loud shout because the loving kindness and faithfulness of God, the saving righteousness of God, is now here. The shouting is considered a joyful noise. Not just screaming for the sake of screaming, but a joyous shouting. The shout would either be a call to war, and sometimes that would happen as armies would go and battle and they would shout and they would then go to fight, sort of a, you know, beat your chest, let's go, it's go time. Shout for joy in that regard. Or it would be the type of shouting after the victory has been won. And I think it's quite clear we're talking about the latter. In in Psalm 98, the victory is won. Everything before that, from Psalm 90 to 97, was an anticipation of the victory. Psalm 98 is the victory. And we have repetition here. We have shouting, we have singing, we have music, we have instrumentation, and we have shouting once again. Several instruments are called forth, the lyre, the trumpet, the horn. Uh, The lyre was a stringed instrument, much like a harp. The trumpet was a straight metallic wind instrument which was oftentimes made of silver or bronze and it would have been thicker than a flute and the horn was a ram's horn which was typically used in military contexts you would blow the horn shout go fight that was usually the 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 process but the psalmist essentially says here have you seen this great thing have you seen this great thing yahweh's actions in history Then praise God the King, all you world, all of you in the world, creation itself. Have you experienced the salvation of God, church? If you've experienced the salvation of God, then shout, he says. I've been in four-hour African services. A lot of shouting. And thankfully, he's cool if I just sit and rest before I go preach with a translator for 45 minutes. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of praise. The Africans know how to worship the Lord, that's for sure. Now, the the shouting and the music here is festive in nature. After all, Christian art is the only true art. And one may recount the festival processions when the military leader would return home after victory. Um, Somewhat like Palm Sunday when Jesus was escorted into Jerusalem. A military victory would have been won. The king would come back with the spoils of victory. The town would go out to meet him and usher him in. There would be shouting, praise, horns blowing, just a massive festival procession. And it would have been a lot of fun. But here, Israel and the world is to celebrate the victory of King Yahweh. We should celebrate his victory because he has been victorious. The third and final section, seven, verses 7 through 9, it basically widens the ceremony and speaks of the universality of praise. The universality of praise. Who is invited to praise? 
nature itself. Look at verse 7. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness. Let the world and those who dwell in it, let the river clap their hands. Imagine the rivers clapping their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy, together for joy, before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The seas and the oceans are supposed to get on the same page with the rivers, the mountains, and the rest of the inhabitants of earth. They must get with the program. What program? Yahweh's kingdom program. Rivers, like men, are called to clap their hands with exuberance. The seas are to roar. You've been to the ocean with big waves. Doesn't it kind of sound like a roar? You, you, you hear the noise from the, well, the water crashing. But the seas are to roar, to shout with praises. The mountains, like a choir, are to get together and must sing together for joy. The mountains need to have all the different, you know, the altos in place and the baritone. They have to have all the choir set up nicely. And what are they singing? Joy to the world. Even inanimate objects are fit for worship in God's kingdom program. God is glorified and praised by the flower that blooms in the spring. He is glorified and praised when the sun comes up and down every single day. And what constitutes such a joy that arouses the created order to join in the new song? What could be so glorious and grandiose that would arouse the created order to stand on tiptoe to sing a new song? Verse 9 tells us, Yahweh is coming to judge the earth. Most of us think, well, that's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. It's terrible for those who are enemies of Christ. But for us, it's an opportunity to get the choir together, get the band together and rejoice. <laughs> Yahweh is coming to judge the earth. However, the good news is that he judges with righteousness and equity. He's not a fickle, double-minded God who just starts throwing lava everywhere because he's mad. He judges with righteousness and equity. All the earth is to praise God because Yahweh will come to judge the earth with righteousness, the kind that is demonstrated to Israel, God's saving righteousness. God saves his people. He delivers his people. Now, righteousness implies a just standard. So when you think of the word righteousness, the, the, the implied word, it's related to justice, but it's a slightly distinct from justice, but it's a, a just standard that is, that is present. The text here says equity as well. Equity speaks of uprightness uh, and a perfect justice. God is not, a, he, doesn't, he doesn't show partiality. He's not a judge that can be bought and bribed. You know, you, you can't give him stock options and then buy his, you know, judgments. Nothing like that. Righteousness and equity. These two things comprise the foundation of God's throne. And thus, these two things comprise the judgment that proceeds from his throne. So no, God shows no partiality. The measuring stick of his law is consistent. It is true, and all of creation must submit to it. Children, that's why your parents are teaching you the law of God. They're teaching you the scriptures. They're teaching you to live in this beautiful, glorious reality so that you can know what is upright and what is true, what is righteous and pure, what is sinful, and so forth. And we want to know what it is because guess what? The trees, they're growing and they're obeying God's law every single day. The mountains do the same. All of creation obeys the law of God. 
but it's man with a heart that's polluted that does not. And that's where the groundwork begins, glorifying God with a heart that's full of grace and gratitude. And the reason this is an occasion for joy and worship and praise and exuberance is because the salvation of Yahweh, his saving righteousness, which was demonstrated in his perpetual rescue of Israel over and over and over again, remember the judges, that is the very means by which the entire created order is brought to restoration. So creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8. A delivered people delivers enslaved cultures. Entropy itself, the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy itself, I believe, it will be mitigated, mitigated when uh, Christ's kingdom grows in history. Perhaps we'll live longer lives in the future because God will bestow his covenant blessing. And maybe we'll live to 500 years again someday. Perhaps. But in this text, we know that Israel is bound together with creation because Yahweh is Lord of both. That's why you see God's deliverance of Israel matched up with the created order. We saw some of that in Psalm chapter 19. So then, how shall we live? Well, the psalm assumes that God's praise, excuse me, God's shaping of Israel's history is a paradigm for shaping world history. God's shaping of Israel's history is a paradigm for shaping world history. That is, Yahweh's plan for Israel was always to bring the world into the kingdom. That's why Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and David, men like that, that's why they were called. They were called to bring the rest of the world into Yahweh's great and glorious kingdom. That's the cultural mandate. That's the Great Commission. As God's royal family, the covenant people were called, Isaiah says, to be a light to the nations. That's why when Jesus says you're to be salt and light, he didn't just make that up on the spot. To be light is to be the true Israel. Jesus is the light of the world. He's given us his light. We are now the light of the world. The Hebrew people, the Hebrew people understood that unlike the pagan gods of the ancient world, Yahweh was uh, not only the covenant Lord of Israel, but he's the covenant Lord of creation. His rulership encompassed all nations. That's why Jonah goes to Nineveh and calls on them to repent, because they too are accountable to the king of the earth. So not only was he covenant Lord of Israel, he was covenant Lord of creation. His rulership encompassed all nations and all peoples and languages and cultures. All of reality is beholden to this king. All of reality, everything is beholden to King Yahweh. Even Solomon, you might remember when he dedicated the temple, even Solomon confessed that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Uh, Paul picks that up in in the book of Acts. So they all acknowledge that. The temple we're building is not because we're trying to take the glorious creator of all things that is infinite and perfect and holy and we're going to stuff him into this temple. They all knew that that's not how it works. When you're the Lord of creation, you are not going to be forced into a building maybe the size of this, bigger. It's not how it works. And he's far too mighty for such nonsense. Solomon knew it. And he was the one who got it going and built it because David wanted to but couldn't, so God told Solomon to do it. Yahweh was not to be confined to one single space, nor was he to be confined to one single moment in time. I'm going to come back to that, but note that. The God of Israel transcends time and space because he is the creator God. 
King Yahweh is king of the world, Yahweh. Having done the miraculous for Israel, God is now called upon to be acknowledged and asserted as the savior of the world because he is. So think of it this way. You're, you're a Jewish person in, I don't know, let's say 8th century B.C., and this psalm comes across your desk and you're singing it in your con convocation and so on. You know Israel's Savior is the world's Savior. But you also know that Israel's Savior is the world's Creator. And you also know that Israel's Creator is the world's Savior. And the same is true for us now with Christ our King. So the rest of the world stuffed gods into the local temples all the time. You want to, you know, uh, Mount Olympus, you want to go to worship Zeus. If you want to go to a certain uh, Roman god, you just go to the certain temple. Um, I remember walking around Rome a few years ago looking at all the ancient ruins and seeing the temples. And, and they'll tell you exactly what it all was and which god lived there. <laughs> and you laugh like, what a puny god. He has to live there. That's, he, he has no jurisdiction elsewhere. Fascinating. Not our God. Furthermore, when we consider what Jesus means when he preaches about the impending kingdom of God, which was coming into the world, which accompanying, uh, accompanied his uh, entrance into the world, signed and sealed by his blood, let's not forget his atoning blood, we are confronted with the reality that the kingdom of God has dropped on an unsuspecting world in a new and exciting way. That's what makes reading the New Testament so much fun, especially the Gospels. You read them and you just think everything's ho-hum normal. Jesus comes in, first words out of the Gospel of Mark, the, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. The authority that's announced in Psalm 98 was bestowed on God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The authority that Christ has been established uh, based on Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ascension, the authority of Christ has been, has been established. He has ascended on high. He is the King of kings. He has been, the, all of that message has been asserted by the prophets, the apostles, the people of God throughout the ages. Listen, the Christian church has confessed the lordship of Christ. The problem is we haven't confessed the practical lordship of Christ. We've abstracted, abstracted it and said, okay, it's up there. He's Lord. Yes, we know he's Lord of the creation. But we don't dare call upon Washington, D.C. to repent. That's not, that's not how it works. That's not how the church has understood it throughout history. And we've got some things wrong, certainly, in, in church history. But moreover, the, the church today, the bride of Christ, who is only cleansed by the blood of the Lamb is a testimony of God's saving righteousness in history. You all here today are a testimony of God's saving righteousness in history. We confess that 2,000 years ago, Christ was put on a cross for our sins and raised from, raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He rules from a throne today. He's not coming back to rule. He is ruling. And that's what the Apostle Paul gets at in Romans uh, Chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, some of it's on the front of the bulletin there. In the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. We are told about the perfection of Christ, the holiness of Christ. We're told in the gospel message about God's saving intentions, his deliverance that he gives to his people. That is his saving righteousness. 
The saving righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and if there was ever a time for the people of God to sing forth the praises of God, it's because of the gospel. I mean, we are great at navel-gazing, aren't we? Woe is me. Woe is me. Looking only at the self, not having the self-awareness to realize that you're not the only one in the world, and you're certainly not the one who has suffered the most today. We navel-gaze and we forget that, no, no, I can call upon God and praise Him because of His saving righteousness in the gospel. I'm a living testimony of that. And that's when you can do the Psalm 42 thing and talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Now, we are that testimony in the world, friends. We are that testimony in the world. We show the world in how we live what the salvation of Christ looks like. God... <laughs> I'm going to say that again. We, we show the world in how we live what the salvation of Christ looked like. Is that a little cringe, though? Do we have work to do? We do. God intends to demonstrate for the world what His salvation looks like through the bride of Christ. And that is a high calling for the church who was called the pillar and support of truth. The coming of Jesus was the climax of God's covenant dealings with Israel. And from there, the church was set forth as a new Israel into the world to exemplify God's saving righteousness in transforming men, women, and children and all of men's cultural pursuits. Listen to what Mary, the mother of Jesus, said. She said one simple, said a few things, but this one simple thing in Luke 1, verse 54. She said, He, referring to God, has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. That's from the Magnificat. God has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. Who was the one that prompted that? The, the child. <laughs> That's from the mouth of Jesus, or excuse me, the, the mouth of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Additionally, because the saving righteousness of God exhibited in the gospel and applied by the Holy Spirit serves to transform men and nations, it is therefore incumbent upon us. It behooves the church of Jesus Christ to stop trying to truncate the gospel, to stop trying to truncate Christ's kingdom. The church today simply must stop treating the lordship of Christ as though he were a deity whose boundary line is the local church property. It is maddening today that people genuinely believe and think that the lordship of christ his authority extends no further than the local church property the, the triune god is most certainly present when the true church gathers as the church institute for worship right like we do to worship the risen lord in song and prayer and word and covenant meal and he is most certainly present and active Mothers, when you're at home training your children how to have proper table manners, or dads too, he's present, he's there. And fathers, when you're at work, working hard to put bread on the table, he's present, absolutely. The, the church institute is, is, is one thing, and it's good. The church as a mission, the church on mission is another thing, and it too is good. And we need both. We need, we need the, the, the activity of our worship in, in, in here when we gather on the Lord's Day, but also the activity of the church out there in the world, in your homes, around the dinner table, when you sit for family worship, 
when you pray, when you study the Bible together, when you do your homeschool work, and dare I say, when kids, when you're doing your math, you can glorify God in that. You can. But we have to stop cardening off the Lord of glory, placing him in one space and one time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you would dare sequester his reign to your heart, and that's it. God's kingdom has been universal from the very beginning. What else would you expect when he starts to lay claim to the politicians, when he starts to lay claim to the musicians, when he starts to lay claim to Hollywood? What what would you expect? He is Lord of all. The gospel itself, heralded by a victorious church, is God's answer to man's self-imposed exile. When men, women, and children see for the very first time the glories of Christ's gospel and the joy that flows out of it, we give witness to the world the miraculously transforming power of God's saving righteousness. You are a testimony every single day. You are a witness every single day. And we cannot be quiet about it, and nor should we try. Nor should we try. When the gospel grips your heart, the universality of the gospel becomes your thing. It just does. Um, it, it becomes the very thing that you reorient your life around, and you shout about it, you sing about it, you play instruments to glorify God. If you don't know how to play an instrument, maybe it's time to learn. I'm sure Keith would love to give you some pointers. And you should converse about it. I mean, come on, it, the, the rule of Christ over all things becomes the joy of your family, the reason you get up out of bed every day. The joy of your city, the joy of your county, the joy of nature itself. If you're too busy talking about people and not the lordship of Christ, then you may have an orientation problem. Your wheels are out of balance, which is why you're bumbling down the road rather awkwardly. This ever-expanding kingdom is, is supposed to be the call of all nations to rejoice in this king. Asserting the crown rights of King Jesus is an assertion of that which is worthy of our praise and adoration. Friends, our culture knows how to praise things, right? They have a whole month dedicated to praising arrogance, and they go on and on about it. They know what exuberance looks like. They know what praising something looks like. And our task is to make sure they praise the right thing, the right person, Christ, not self. The song of the church is the victory of Christ. Do you sing it? The song of the church, our battle cry, is the victory of Christ in the gospel. Do you sing it? Do you? Is that the working paradigm of your life? Christ is risen. Christ is ruler. Does your heart, does your heart leap? Does, does the joy you have in your heart spill out into song? Are you sometimes at home and you sing out because of joy in your heart? Try not to bother some people who may not like it. Do you pick up an instrument as a means of expressing the justice and righteousness of God? Are you quick to dwell on the saving righteousness of God and, and, and the universal call for all peoples to join in on the praise and the worship? That's what we want. It may seem awkward, but like we want this county to just get together with some instruments and sing to the glory of God. It's a metaphor. We want them to honor Christ in all of their pursuits, their business dealings, everything, you know, their families, their marriages, 
We want, we want that, but we want them to sing to the glory of God. Joy to the world indeed. The birth of Christ, which describes the decisive event when God became a man in order to transform the nations, is the entrance of this glorious song into a deaf world of rebellion. We say joy to the earth because the Savior reigns. Let men their song employ. And listen, we've talked a lot about music and stuff. The full-throated worship of the church is what conquers nations. Not the half-hearted worship of the church. The full-throated. Sing it loud. Praise God loud. That's what conquers nations. Not just, not just our prayers and our songs, but our lives too. And not just our lives, but our cultures. Worship describes the cultic activity of the church, church institute. But it also recalls the Apostle Paul's admonition to be a living sacrifice. What Christ was for Israel, the church is called to herald in the world. And we, we want to, to bring them along and see that. We are, we are a living, breathing, singing, clapping sacrifice so that the nations can be brought into the covenant. And, and one more thing here. Yahweh's kingdom is good for the world, just like his law is good for the world. We saw that in Psalm 19. You don't have to apologize for that. His kingdom pattern is good for the world. The kingdom of God is a social order, and it drops into the world, and it deals with cultures and institutions and all of those things. It, the foundation, it deals with men and women, right, and children. It deals with us on a heart level, but it expresses itself out there. We don't need to apologize for that. We don't need to apologize that the kingdom is good for the world. Do you believe it, though? It really, truly is good for the world. It's, good, it's a good thing that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's a good thing that God became man. It is also a good thing that Christ lived a perfect life of obedience because we do not, and the world most certainly does not. It is also good that Christ died so that we might die. It is very good that Christ was raised so that we too might be raised on the last day. But to top it off, it is good that Christ ascended to the throne, leaving his disciples, and as a consequence, gave us his Holy Spirit. That is good. In fact, Jesus says as much. It is good that I leave you, for then the Helper can come. It's good. The implications of Christ's kingdom, that immaculate gospel message, the implications are cosmic and eternal, and it is good. Don't, don't apologize for it. Don't try to blame shift it away or, you know, talking to somebody. You believe that Jesus is Lord of all and that the nations should repent, and, and especially Congress? Don't, don't be like, eh, well, I mean, some extremists say that. My pastor says it, but... No, you say, yes, I believe it, and it's good. And it's good. That's why we confess that Christianity and not humanism is good for the world. We want Christian nationalism, not pagan nationalism. Y'all are getting pagan nationalism right now. Do you like it? <laughs> it's terrible. The Christian faith, delivered once and for all to the saints, accounts for the totality of our existence. It accounts for man's need for salvation. It accounts for the laws of creation, the laws of morality, the laws of mathematics and chemistry. And it accounts for the ethics that are necessary for cultures to actually survive. It explains what justice and equity truly looks like because it comes from God who judges in this manner. And at the very end, note, he's judging the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He judges in history and he judges at the end of history and there's no escaping it. 
It's appointed for man to die once, then face judgment, Hebrews says. The judgment is coming, and that should excite us. We want God to judge America, and we want him to judge us so that we can be pure and holy in his eyes, because he's doing it with righteousness and equity. And if you're right with him, and your family's right with him, and your church is right with him, you're fine. It's those who are saturated in unbelief that are not going to be fine. But Christianity frees man from his abhorrent belief in the supremacy of his rationalism, and it gives him a new heart so that he can finally see. So friends, it's a good thing for us to recount the saving deeds of God in Christ. Even better to see to it that our lives are rearranged to reflect the totality of his reign. Christ has come, his kingdom knows no end, therefore justice and righteousness must be established in the world. And frankly, listen, that seems like a tall order, but we can start by calling upon his name. We can call upon his name, making known his acts among the people. That is Psalm 105, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so, so blessed by your word. When we read these psalms, we see the richness that's contained in them. We certainly see the, the totality of your, your, your rulership, the fact that you've established your son, the Lord Jesus, as our great king. Um, that is, man, that is, that is worth leaping for joy about. And we know that there are churches in history that have piltered out because they had forgotten their first love. And that's you, Jesus. And I, and I pray that we would sing the victory songs. And we know that those who write the songs write the culture, and we want to see songs that honor you and glorify you not songs that honor and glorify man. So as we sing, as we take communion, as we fellowship with our meal, God, would you be with us in your spirit. Help us to, to be full of joy, full of grace, and help us to join in the great song, Joy to the World. In Christ's name we pray, amen.